This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, this is David Rutledge with you once again for The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. Have you noticed how these days on social media, and not just on social media, but certainly on social media, everything is a moral issue. If I have a view on something and you disagree with me, then you're not just in disagreement with me, you're a bad person. And that's because the opinions I happen to hold make me a good person. And it's very important for me that I express these opinions as often and as loudly as possible because that's how I get to advertise my moral goodness to the rest of the world. It's almost like the opinions don't even matter. What's really important is that act of self-advertisement. It's called moral grandstanding, and it's a very human form of behaviour. We're social animals, we place a high value on what other people think of us, and that often leads us to do worthy and noble things. But these days, everyone has a megaphone and an audience, and moral grandstanding has become something a little more serious, even more dangerous than just a common human foible. Well, that's the view of this week's guests, Justin Tosi, Assistant Professor in Philosophy at Texas Tech University, and Brandon Warmke, Assistant Professor in Philosophy at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. They're the authors of a new book, Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. And they're speaking with producer Hong Jang. A few years back, Brandon and I started noticing uh, from the conversations that we're seeing on social media and, and even sometimes in person that public discourse uh, around moral and, and political topics was becoming really toxic. And we kind of wondered why that was. So we started reading stuff in, in psychology and, and political science and, and some philosophy, of course. Uh, and what we found is there's good reason to believe that a lot of people are using moral talk in public discourse not to do good, but to look good. So in other words, they're engaging in moral grandstanding. Um, they're turning their contributions to public discourse into a vanity project. So when they do this, it leads them to act in ways that they might not otherwise act, uh, just to put on a good show for their in-group. Uh, so these, these people will engage in uh, public shaming pylons to show other people that you know, they agree that they're on the right side of this issue. Uh, they will engage in ramping up, so they'll turn moral discourse into a moral arms race, which with each of them taking uh, successively extreme positions until uh, you know it's no longer impressive to become even more extreme uh, just to, to outdo one another. They will trump up exotic moral claims um, to show that they're especially morally sensitive to all the injustices in the world. Uh, they will take every opportunity to engage in, in excessive emotional displays to show that they're outraged uh, about whatever the thing is that day that everyone else is, is outraged about. Uh, and they'll also often just say things like, you know, if you don't see what's wrong with, the, with this uh, behavior, with, you know, with what this person did, I don't even know what to say to you. So they get really dismissive and, and you know, they say, everyone else is just not on the level with me and, and my, my degree of moral purity. So all of these things, we you know, talk about it in the book later on as causing uh, moral problems that we should all be concerned about. The term itself dates back to the late 19th century. Um, the earliest recorded use of a term like grandstanding to denote someone who's showing off or being showy was from a book on American baseball, actually, in, eight, in 1888. And this baseball writer was describing these players 
on the field, uh, making an impressive catch and then rolling around and putting on a show for the crowd. And these were called the grandstand players. The term picked up sort of a connotation of being morally showy in the latter half of the 20th century, at least in the U.S., and you can find discussions in the 70s and 80s. And then it really picked up in the 90s uh, where you'll find politicians being accused of moral grandstanding. And so this term was really floating around in public discourse when we started writing on the topic in 2014. I mean, if you look back during, say, President Obama's administration, which was 2000. Eight to 2016, often he was accused of grandstanding, and then he himself was accusing uh, the opposite party of moral grandstanding. And so when we started writing on the topic, this was the best and perhaps the only term to pick out someone who was using moral discourse to impress other people. I'd also like to get a sense of just how common this phenomenon is. Does it mainly exist online and does it only occur within certain groups or bubbles? What we have found through reading other psychology studies and through our own psychology studies with Brandon's colleague, Josh Grubbs, is that this is not a partisan phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon. So this is why I think we see it uh, not just in any one country uh, or contained to any one political party uh, or anything like that, uh, but pretty much everywhere uh, and in every group that's based around belief in uh, a certain set of of moral principles or, or doctrines. So if you read social psychology about people's moral beliefs and their their behavior around um, moral communication, a very clear picture starts to emerge. The easiest thing to demonstrate, some psychologists say, uh, is that we are all self-righteous. We like to think that we are are morally good people. Uh, We like to think we're even better than we actually are. So we all engage in uh, moral self-enhancement. We also uh, like other people to share this assessment of us. Uh, We like them to think that we're morally good. uh, So we engage in impression management. So we take steps uh, to get across to others that uh, we have the right views and that we are morally good people. Uh, We also like to be better than (laughs) other people and we compare ourselves to them. Uh, So you might think of yourself as being you know, the most liberal or, or most conservative or, or whatever uh, among your friends. Uh, and the result of, of all of these ingredients, when you put it together, is you get people in a group that kind of agree. Uh, you get them talking about moral issues, uh, and they try to outdo one another. So all of the ingredients are there. You just get people in the right social environment, make it easy enough for them uh, to grandstand, and they'll do it. I wonder if there are some examples that you yourselves have recently come across. And in those examples, could you tell me who also you think that they are grandstanding to? So this is a really difficult question. You know, often when people hear about our work on grandstanding or or read some of our our writing, they want to know what grandstanding looks like or they want some really clear examples of it. Here's the problem. It's actually very difficult to know whether someone is grandstanding just by looking at what they say. So, for example, think about lying. It's often hard to know whether someone is lying because lying is more than just saying something false. You have to want to or try to deceive someone with what you're saying. So it's hard to just look at what someone says, say a piece of written text or in an interview, and just determine whether they're lying. 
And there's something very similar going on with grandstanding. So grandstanding really has two parts. There's a desire or motivation to try to impress people. And then there's the thing you say that's being motivated by this desire to impress other people. One of the cases we give in the book, and we think this is a fairly clear case of grandstanding, is um, Harvey Weinstein. He's a He was a Hollywood um, mogul. He made films. He was the CEO of Miramax. And about three years ago, he was accused by dozens of women of some pretty grotesque stuff, you know, sexual assault and rape and, and so on. And he was quiet for a while. And then he came out and released a statement where he said he's really angry. He came of age during a different time. And then he started dangling his, his desires to further certain kinds of progressive causes in front of us. You know, he's saying he's going to try to take down President Trump and take out the National Rifle Association. He's going to start a scholarship for women. He's going to not disappoint his mother. And it was pretty obvious to, I think, everyone across the political spectrum that what he was doing was trying to convince us that he's actually a good person. Now, I think this is an interesting case because it's pretty clear that no one was listening to Harvey Weinstein and thinking, oh, I guess he's actually a good, a good guy. So it's a case of you know, failed grandstanding. But it's, I think it's a safe case because it's such an egregious and obvious example of someone trying to use moral discourse. And everything he said, as far as we know, is true, but trying to convince us that he's a good person. Now, lots of cases of grandstanding are not as clear as that or as egregious as that. Often grandstanding is very subtle and quiet, but just because it's subtle and quiet doesn't make it no less of a poison. Something else that I find interesting in your book and in your research as well is that you don't just stick in the realm of philosophy. You actually draw a lot from studies in psychology. So why did you decide to go with a multidisciplinary approach, Justin? I think Brandon and I were move to take a broader approach to inquiry in this topic than you usually might in, in writing about philosophy. Um, just because when we're writing this thing up initially, we just found ourselves thinking so often, well, well, surely this is how people behave. Of course, people you know care about what other people think of them. And of course, people are, are kind of self-righteous. No one thinks they're a bad person and so on. So it was just sort of natural, I guess, for us to then think like, well, you know, that does seem obvious to us. But on the other hand, it's also kind of lazy to just assume that the world works the way uh, you need it to in order to uh, support your thesis or confirm what you kind of want to be true or or whatever will make it easier for you to publish this paper or or book or whatever. So it seemed to us the only responsible thing to do would be to actually engage uh, with the social sciences and and see what social scientists had actually discovered about these topics. I mean, the last thing we want to do uh, is just write what will at least look to other people like some politically motivated screed uh, about all the ills of public discourse uh, without having proper empirical support for it when it's just so plain that we're making empirical claims. One of the things that is a pet peeve, I think it's a pet peeve for both Justin and I, is um, philosophers who muse about how the world actually is without looking at the world. (laughs) There's there's a lot of philosophers who I think want the world to be a certain way. And often what they do is look away from the world. They're not interested in in the evidence. They're not interested in what 
scientists tell us, social psychologists tell us about how people are, how they behave, or what the what the data is about this question or that. They, I think, it drives us kind of crazy that that a lot of philosophers want to look away from the world, and yet, you know, make a lot of bold claims about how the world is. And if there's anything that we did right with this book. I think it was hopefully take seriously that a lot of the things that we're saying bear on on the real world, on the facts on the ground. And as Justin pointed out, you just can't make this stuff up. Uh, I mean, a lot of the book is a lot of serious philosophy in there where we're giving moral arguments. But a lot of our claims are, you know, are about what people are like and what people do and how they behave. And I think to be a responsible scholar, you just can't make stuff up and expect to get by with it. So it was important to us to try to draw on as much existing empirical research from economics, political science, psychology as we could. But also, you know, a lot of that research was not bearing you know, specifically on our interest in grandstanding. And so what we did was we paired with a social psychologist, uh, personality psychologist, and we did our own studies. And we've been doing that for three years now. And, and some of the things we found are surprising. Some of the things we found corroborate some of our speculations in the book. Uh, but we think the work as a whole stands on its own uh, much more sturdily because we've, <laughs> I mean, hopefully we've tried to look at the world instead of turning away and trying to, trying to figure out what the world's like from our armchairs. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone. This week, Hong Jang is talking with Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke, co-authors of Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. some of the consequences of grandstanding now. So two of the ones that you two have found are polarization and cynicism. So Justin, could you tell me more about polarization and how that results from grandstanding? Sure. So one of the forms that grandstanding often takes is what I talked about earlier is ramping up. So this is when you get people going back and forth talking about some moral issue. And it seems like there's kind of an arms race to take the most pure, most extreme position that the group is still likely to accept as, as reasonable and worthy of, of admiration and, and some evidence that you are uh, morally admirable. So we talk about polarization in, in a couple of ways. One way that people become polarized is that they adopt ideologically extreme beliefs. Um, so you can see why this would happen if people engage in a bunch of, of ramped up moral discussions, uh, because they don't see themselves as changing their views when they do this. They see themselves as, as you know, really articulating how they really think about this. And, you know, it, it seems to them it's just kind of becoming more clear as they refine these beliefs with the people in their in-group. Uh, but in fact, they're subtly shifting their views to become more extreme on a left-right spectrum or, or whatever uh, you think is the salient political spectrum. Another thing that people will do to become polarized is they will become what political scientists uh, call affectively polarized. So they'll adopt more extreme negative evaluations of people in the opposing party or people with different ideologies. 
they just kind of get going about uh, how you know morally blighted the other side is, um, how they, they don't care about poor people or you know they don't care about economic growth. You know they're willing to throw away everything that made society great. Um, and you know by the end of of these discussions, uh, the people on the other side just seem like monsters. So everyone you know who's, who's uh, engaged in these discussions hates them. So, you know, all of this is a result of this process that, that we've talked about in a couple of ways now uh, of people trying to ramp up their, their political beliefs uh, in order to uh, impress the people in their in-group. And the reason this is so pernicious uh, is not just that, well, extreme political beliefs are, are all bad. Um, it's that the process itself isn't truth sensitive. So the people who are adjusting their views aren't doing it because the evidence points that way uh, or because of careful moral reasoning. Uh, they're doing it because they think it will get them points. I think a lot of people of a certain age, they remember uh, perhaps a vivid event where they realize that politicians, public figures, you know, a lot of the things they say, they say because they're trying to sell something, they're trying to get elected. And I think we all know that. But once people start using everyday moral discourse on Facebook, social media, you know, cable news, once you start seeing people across society using public discourse for selfish motives, for egoistic motives, to gain status, to make themselves look good, it's hard not to come away from that thinking that all these people on Twitter are just in it for themselves. They're not truly interested in figuring out what the truth is or solving problems or compromising with the other side. They're not saying these things because they really care about finding out the fact of the matter. They, what they're really in it for is to feel good and to make themselves look good. And so this is a huge problem when a bunch of us look at moral discourse as nothing more than a battleground of mean-spirited and egoistic people vying for social status. I mean, that's just not healthy. I mean, moral, moral discourse is one of our primary, if not the primary way that we solve social problems. We identify wrongdoers. We praise people worthy of our trust. And it's, it's an important way, especially in a democracy, to understand other people, promote civic friendship, just to live together with people we disagree. We have to have public discourse be healthy. We have to have mutual understanding. But when people are trashing and destroying it, just trying to use it as a vanity project, uh, it causes us to be cynical. And you don't want people to take a cynical eye towards public discourse. For it to work well, people have to treat it respectfully, treat it like a valuable resource, and not treat it just like a way to improve their social status among their friends. I'd also like to play devil's advocate. Um, so I'm wondering whether you think grandstanding is actually always bad. So let's say, for example, a business donates a large amount of money towards a specific cause and they announce it to everyone. You know, their PR team is on the case. There's billboards and there's TV ads everywhere. And, you know, you can sort of make the argument like, hey, no business is going to do anything purely out of the goodwill of their hearts. But them, you know, donating a large amount of money for a specific um, ethical cause, even for the sake of their reputation, is better than them not donating any money in the first place. So would this example count as a case of grandstanding? And 
whether this could be a case where perhaps the ends justify the means? What we argue in the book uh, is that grandstanding is always bad and it generally should be avoided. Um, In this respect, grandstanding is like lying. I mean, there's always something bad about lying, even if at the end of the day, maybe lying is the thing that you should do sometimes. So we think of grandstanding in this way. There's always something inherently or intrinsically bad about grandstanding, either because it has, you know, overall bad consequences. Maybe it's disrespectful. We have a chapter in the book where we argue that grandstanding shows disrespect to other people. All that to say, um, I think you're absolutely right that there may be instances in which the best thing to do out of all options available to you is to grandstand. The other thing, you know, I think we want to point out is that, you know, if you think that this grandstanding company is good, well, we have to ask like, well, do they have good values? And what are the consequences of engaging in this sort of marketing to try to impress people? Are they going to engage in marketing that's actually leads people further away from the truth? So just because a business is in business, you know, is trying to impress people, that doesn't mean they're going to advocate for the right values. We've been talking about how our moral discourse uh, mainly can be negatively affected as a result of grandstanding. So just before we get into the solutions, I'd like to ask, what are some things that we should avoid when dealing with grandstanding? Um, So probably the most tempting thing for people uh, is to see a case of what looks to you like grandstanding, you know, someone just really laying it on thick about, about how strongly they feel about some moral case. What people really want to do then is call that person out. So Brandon and I say in the book that this is exactly the wrong thing to do. So not only is it very unlikely to actually get you anywhere, right? So people will probably see this and then respond defending the person. Uh, They'll accuse you of grandstanding. I mean, this is just never helpful uh, because it distracts even further from the substantive issue at stake. Um, So what it does then, in other words, uh, is make moral talk about exactly what the grandstander wants how good they are. So how do we move beyond that? You know, how do we begin to, I guess, help heal our public moral discourse and deal with grandstanding? So the first thing I think we recommend is that you should keep in mind grandstanding is attention-seeking behavior. So you shouldn't give grandstanders what they want. Don't give them attention. Don't give them likes uh, for for saying the crowd-pleasing thing. Um, Don't acknowledge that they've said anything if, if you think that they're grandstanding. Um, you know, this does two things. On the one hand, if you're wrong, right, it's not a big deal, right? It's not a big deal to not give someone attention, uh, whereas it is a, it can be really ugly and destructive to engage in a, in a nasty back and forth about whether someone is grandstanding. The other thing is, if enough people do this, if enough people just don't give grandstanders the attention that they want, you know, eventually the hope is it will become embarrassing for people to engage in grandstanding. So imagine sitting down and taking like 10 minutes, writing out, you know, this very carefully crafted statement about, you know, I've long fought for the so-and-so group and, you know, my, my heart is always with them and, and nobody likes it. Nobody pays any attention to you at all. It's probably pretty embarrassing. So if that becomes a very common thing that can happen, people might think twice uh, about grandstanding. It might become something that's seen as embarrassing. Uh, The other thing, 
and maybe the most important thing that you can do is try not to grandstand yourself. So if you're about to sit down and, and say something about some moral issue, ask yourself, am I doing this to look good? Or do I think something good might actually come of this? Right? Will this actually help anyone uh, if this moral statement is, is made? Uh, and if it doesn't actually get me any attention, will I be disappointed? If you think that you would be disappointed by other people not giving you any approval, any social credit uh, for saying whatever you're, you're about to say, then maybe you want to sit this one out. And Brandon, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's a, such an incredible temptation for so many of us. Uh, you know, if you think back like 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, to have an audience of 50 people, 100 people, you, you'd have to be <laughs> a politician or a minister. The average person just wouldn't be able to easily get a thousand people together to talk about their favorite moral positions or their projects or whatever. But almost anyone now, I mean, with a cell phone, with a computer, they can get on Twitter, they get on Facebook, they've developed a small following for whatever reason. They can talk to dozens, hundreds of thousands of people. And that temptation is, is really, I think for a lot of us, we can admit that temptation is really strong. Because we all know that the things that you could say to get lots of attention. We all know what those things are. And a lot of people give into that temptation because they know that, you know, they can get a rush of dopamine for the next three hours if they say that thing, because they'll get a bunch of likes and retweets. And so human psychology is not changed all that much. What's changed is technology. We now just have greater platforms, more readily available platforms for this this part of our psychology to sort of show up and cause damage. And I think for a lot of us, trying to think about discourse as a fragile, very important resource that we could treat well and preserve and protect and use it for the ends that it can be used for to promote good causes. Or we can use this resource for selfish reasons. We can drop our toxic waste in it. We can use it for selfish ends. And I think a lot of us, this maybe sounds a little grandstandy, but I think for a lot of us, it's really important to just sort of reflect on why we say the things that we do. Am I really doing this, as Justin mentioned, to, to do good? Can I really think about the ways in which what I'm saying is actually going to cause good consequences and respect people and promote the good? Or am I really just doing this because I want to feel good for the next 10 minutes? And I think a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can admit that expressing outrage, getting worked up, using the heavy moral artillery. A lot of the times we do that because we want to feel good about ourselves and we want the attention from other people. And so there's a kind of, the challenge is to sort of look ourselves squarely in the mirror and honestly ask ourselves, why am I engaging in public discourse? Brandon Warmke, Assistant Professor in Philosophy at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And you also heard Justin Tosi, Assistant Professor in Philosophy at Texas Tech University. Their book is Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk, and they were speaking with producer Hong Jang. More info, as always, on the website. That's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. Next week, Lev Shestov. Not a household name these days, but a really interesting early 20th century European philosopher who was writing at a time of great uncertainty and we might all do very well to rediscover Lev Shestov here in the 21st century. So join me next week. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now. Bye for now.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.